This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for December 20, 2019. In this week's episode, Russia is phasing out Windows, but some much older versions are still in use. Ring customers are reusing passwords, an interesting new Intel chip hack, plus a look at smart home technology in Apple's HomeKit and security. Now here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. was the week before Christmas and all through the house or something like that. It's just a few days before Christmas. How you doing, Josh? Got a lot of snow out there in California? Uh, not where I'm from, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> most places in California don't really get much snow. Uh, I know. Yeah. No, it's yeah. mostly sunny, really, most of the year. It's actually a little hazy outside right now, but this is not a weather show, so... No, it's not. So this week, we've got a bunch of news. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about home automation and Apple's HomeKit. I just want to start with this story that I discovered, I don't know, an hour before we got together to record. Vladimir Putin, according to The Guardian, still uses Windows XP despite hacking risk. Now, you would Uh think that an ex-KGB person would be aware that Windows XP is probably not the most secure operating system. Um, Microsoft dropped support for XP. When was it? In 2014, April 2014. So more than five years ago. The article says Moscow is gradually phasing out Microsoft and Google on government computers in favor of Russian's Astra Linux operating system and domestic browsers such as Yandex. Now, I can understand that they don't want to use Android. They don't want to use Apple stuff. But Microsoft, if they're phasing out Microsoft, but only the more recent secure versions, that's a bit strange. Yeah, I I agree. So, I mean, okay. so from certain perspectives, Maybe I kind of get this. Um, It is possible that um, I'm not sure if Microsoft is still doing this for paying customers for XP. I don't think that they are. Um, But there is a period of time when Microsoft will allow you as basically a government agency or some other organization with just unlimited funding and apparently not enough funding (laughs) in in the uh, IT department to be able to hire somebody to upgrade all your systems. Um, But you've got tons of money to just throw at a problem nevertheless. And so like Microsoft will allow you to extend support for certain operating systems and other products way beyond the normal period, but you just have to pay through the nose for it. Would that support include security fixes? These are big things, security fixes. Yeah. Now, this is actually what now, again, I don't know if Microsoft is still doing this for XP. I don't think that they are. Um, But this is an option for organizations that have just a ton of money. You can. Yes, you can still get security fixes for a lot of outdated Microsoft software. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. You just have to pay for it, which is actually a really interesting a whole other topic. And since we're an Apple focused podcast, we won't get too into it, but I've always found this so fascinating that uh, they're just leaving consumers exposed, even though they are 
developing these patches, they're not making them available unless you are paying extra for them. So they're leaving people vulnerable who are still on XP, even though they were still patching it many years beyond, uh, you know, the public XP patch cycle. Uh, Yeah, that's sort of a weird thing, but that's what Microsoft does. That's how they operate. That's how they roll. Yeah. The same thing will happen, by the way, with Windows 7, which is about to run out of support uh, in the beginning of 2020 or relatively close to the beginning of the year. (laughs) Okay. Windows 7 is a relatively new operating system. So there was Windows XP, then Windows Vista, and then Windows 7. Okay. So in my Windows experience, I remember Windows 3.1 as being the first one to have real Windows, right? Uh, Then there was Windows 95. Then there was Windows 98. There was a 2000, but that was an enterprise thing. Then there was XP, yeah. Vista, and then Windows 10. Oh, Windows 7 is the one that no one liked. Is that it? No, no. Vista was the one that nobody liked. And then okay. most people kind of begrudgingly went from XP, jumped over Vista to Windows 7. And then Windows 8 was the other one that people didn't like. And then uh, you kind of were forced to go to Windows 10 then. Uh, so and they skipped windows 9 because they figured no one would like it anyway um well that and i i honestly think that a big part of it was a lot of older programs um were designed like with a wild card so if this app is running on windows 9 with whatever after it uh with the intent being like if this is running on 95 or 98 then behave this way but if they oh, were to call it Windows 9, and then certain older apps may behave differently, I don't know if that's really true. But that was a rumor. Anyway. I remember at the time, Apple people speculated it was because uh, Macs were running Mac OS 10 and Windows wanted to catch up. I think that's a big part. I'm sure marketing had a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. Okay. One, one thing we were discussing before we started recording is the fact that here is a country that is essentially outlawing software made in other countries. And and if they're going to use their Astro Linux operating system, that means that the Russian government has obviously put things in it, backdoors and ways of controlling people. Um, China, a huge country that is pretty much excluding uh, Western operating systems. I mean, they're still using Android for now, but I believe that they're going to replace it soon. And just out of curiosity, I looked up um, Brazil. Brazil is a huge country. Um, Mac and iOS usage is very small, 6.8% market share, uh, for OS 10 and 3.85% for iOS because they have huge taxes on imported hardware. So while we are kind of used to Apple being, uh, a fairly dominant company in terms of operating systems, it's not the case. There are entire countries where Apple, uh, really has very little presence. By by the way, I did look this up because I was really curious about whether Microsoft will was still allowing XP to get patches if you were paying for them. And apparently that um, ultra extended support ended um, earlier this year for certain versions of Windows XP. So um, so so Vladimir has not been weaned of his Windows XP computer yet. Um, <laughs> he still has, he has at very least even if they even if Russia was paying for the ultra extended version of support, uh, he's he still hasn't been getting any kind of patches for most of a year. So um, yeah, that's not so great. 
Okay, last week we talked about some ring doorbell issues. This is going to become as common as Facebook issues, isn't it? And and you and I are concerned because we both have ring doorbells. Um, we, we have an article that came out a week ago just after we recorded, uh, Washington Post. She installed a ring camera in her children's room for peace of mind. A hacker accessed it and harassed her eight-year-old daughter. I think one of the problems here is that ring wants to blame the victims, whereas I believe that we've gotten to the point where these companies have a responsibility to make sure that people are very aware to not reuse logins and passwords and to offer two-factor authentication whenever possible. Right. Well, that's exactly the thing. It's not that they're that the so-called hacker is exploiting some vulnerability in Ring's system. Um, the only thing that is going on here is, as you alluded to, this is a case where people are reusing passwords and not using two-factor authentication. So they're taking something as serious as a security camera system that is on their property that allows people to see and listen to things that are going on on your property. And they're using uh, the same old boring password that they use at a hundred other websites that have long since been breached. Um, So yes, I, I, based on a couple of things that I read, it seemed like ring was kind of pointing the finger at victims and saying, Oh, well you shouldn't have been reusing passwords. True. But Ring also has an opportunity here. Rather than pointing fingers at victims, they should be saying uh, they should actually be implementing technologies that validate passwords. And uh, so if a password has shown up in any of these public breaches, it should basically be permanently banned from being used as a password in their system. Um, Now, there are ways, by the way, that Ring could actually test this and without having to know your password, what they could do is they could uh, run it through basically an algorithm to check whether um, any of these passwords have been used on accounts that have already been set up. There are ways that they could do that without having to actually know everybody's password. Um, But that's the kind of thing that Ring should be really doing. Um, I will say in their, you know, not exactly in their defense, but they, they have at least... In the Ring app, some people who had not had two-factor authentication previously set up are at least getting prompted to do that. They're not getting necessarily prompted to change their password, but at least they're getting prompted to turn on two-factor authentication. Yes. While you were talking, I opened the Ring app. Now, remember, I have a doorbell. I don't have a security camera. And I do get a screen with a shield and a padlock, extra security for your Ring account. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about the doorbell. I will set it up. But it's true that it's not the user's fault here. And and as you say, there are ways of determining this. And and I think we're getting to the point where it's a responsibility of these companies to educate users to make it very clear what the risk is, particularly with something like this. And in the second part of the show, we'll talk about some security cameras I've set up outside my house. This is really important stuff. Let's just quickly go through some interesting news. One that I caught on the BBC today is that 38,000 students in a German university are lining up to get new passwords for their email accounts. The university was hit by a cyber attack, and the university is issuing the passwords to the students rather than saying to the students, make a new password. That means the university is keeping the passwords so they can check the email of the students? 
<laughs> well, it certainly sounds like that. From a certain perspective, I look, I, I know it's very difficult for uh for schools to um uh sort of make sure that all their students are uh have secured accounts and things like that, but it's really never a great idea to be issuing a password to somebody, especially if you're telling them, oh, by the way, you can't change it. Now I don't particularly see that in this uh, article. And they have a more complete statement that I, I haven't read the whole thing. So maybe they're allowing and people it's in to German. change it. Yeah, well, it's in German. And my uh, German is not uh, not the best, but I could run this through Google Translate, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully they're allowing them to change their password after this. But what I suspect is going on here is that um, they may not be doing that. If that's the case, if they're not allowing them to change their password, then yes, this is a kind of scary thing because that implies that, well, then the university just knows every student's password and that's not good. Um, They should be, if they're going to reset everyone's password, totally fine, but give everyone a temporary password and that the next time they log in, they can choose their own. Increase the complexity requirements, totally fine if they want to do that. But knowing everyone's password would not be a good thing if that's, in fact, what they're doing. Okay, very quickly before the break, I said to you before we started recording, I love these exploits that are really clever. And there's a new one called Plunder Vault, stealing secrets by starving your computer of voltage. Apparently, if you reduce the voltage by a microvolt or a tenth of a volt, the voltage that goes into your computer's CPU, you can actually do things to the computer. This should not be possible. <laughs> this is really strange and and bad, but it's great that um, researchers are figuring these things out. So I guess the main takeaway for our listeners is you don't actually need to worry about this if you are a Mac user. And the reason for that is because this exploits a technology that exists in Intel chips, but is not enabled for uh, Apple devices. And Macs uh, have this technology called SGX built into the, the Intel CPUs, but Macs don't really allow SGX to be used. And so the thing that this is exploiting is not really applicable to Macs, thankfully. And, you know, we, we have talked before about all of these processor vulnerabilities. Um, this one's a little different. Uh, we did have a, a, a listener actually email us this week and ask about, hey, Intel processor vulnerabilities, what do I need to do? There's Spectre related things and all that kind of stuff. The the thing that we've recommended in the past um, for those types of vulnerabilities that, that exploit hyper-threading, a little different than this. Um, but CPU Setter is a free app that you can can download, and it will actually turn off hyper-threading without having to even reboot your computer. So far, we haven't really had Intel vulnerabilities that have been a really, really major big deal on Macs that can't be mitigated using CPU Setter. This one, this new XGX uh, vulnerability, Plundervolt, we don't really need to worry about that one, thankfully, even though this is a, a different type of vulnerability. Okay, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about the smart home. I bet my home is smarter than yours, Josh. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. 
It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. And then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, smart home. Now, you and I both have some smart home devices in our homes. And when all this started, this goes back a few years that Apple released HomeKit. It's not new. Um, It's taken a while for all of this to be adopted. I mean, 2014 is when HomeKit came around, and that's five years ago. And there were smart home devices before that. I even knew someone in the 1970s. I went to his house once, and he walked into a room and clapped his hand and and the lights came on. So there are protocols that have existed for a very long time. But the smart home is kind of slowly insinuating itself. You may have an Alexa device. I know you do. We both have ring doorbells. I've got home pods. The home is getting smarter and it's very slow because if you think about it, any one of your computers can do something smart. You've got an Apple Watch like I do. And that can also be involved in home automation. I'll link in the show notes to an article I've written on the Intego Mac security blog called Use Apple HomeKit to Automate Your Home and Keep It Secure. Uh, What we want to talk about here is the secure aspect in two ways. Uh, In a a previous story about the Ring camera, that's security. It's a security camera. But there's also the security that we were just talking about of protecting your devices with passwords, with two-factor authentication and the ability to manage them remotely. There were a number of companies that were at the forefront of this. And just yesterday, we're recording on the 19th and on the 18th, there was an announcement that Amazon, Apple, Google, and Zigbee Alliance and board members form working group to develop open standard for smart home devices. This is kind of interesting because you get into a market, think VHS versus Betamax. And one company tries to be dominant over the others and none of them succeed. And they all realize, okay, we're just going to all have to agree in order for all of us to benefit from this. And and Apple and these other companies are essentially open sourcing the protocols. Um, If you know what GitHub is, the software will be available there. And this is going to greatly change the home automation and home smart home environment because you will no longer have to worry in a couple of years about buying specific devices that are specifically compatible with one of these platforms. 
Yeah, it's not very often that Apple jumps uh, on the bandwagon with a lot of these um, groups of technology companies that get together to s- decide on standards. So it is really interesting to see Apple being part of this uh, this club, <laughs> this consortium. But it is a great thing because um, it's it's nice that Apple engineers are actually going to have input on standards and that Apple is actually going to be part of a standard Uh, rather than just kind of doing their own thing, which is kind of the typical Apple way. So for me, the smart home started when I got a couple of Philips Hue light bulbs. Uh, In my home office, my desk is facing a corner, and I have a a lamp behind my desk that's kind of hard to reach, and another one in the opposite corner of my office. And I figured, okay, I want to try out this stuff, and it would be nice to be able to just tell Siri to turn on the lights in my office. And I've gotten a couple more Philips Hue lights in different places. I've got a HomePod, even though I don't consider that smart yet. And very recently, I bought some security cameras to put outside my house. Um, If you look in the article, you'll see a screenshot of the Home app, which shows my lights and shows the view from two of the cameras. Uh, What's interesting about this is that as this goes on, you can slowly add all sorts of different devices. They can be sensors uh, like a thermostat or an alarm sensor. Um, They can be speakers. They can be lights. They can be all sorts of things. So for you, you've just got the doorbell and what else? You've got an Alexa device. Um, Yeah. I, yeah, I, I I don't, I don't really have all of these devices integrated with each other though. So like, I can't tell, for example, my uh, Amazon echo to do something with my ring camera because ring, uh, although they're both Amazon products, I, I, I don't have them like communicating with each other and being able to control the other. There is one way for some of these devices to work together. It's a, I guess it's an app or a service called IFTTT. If this, then that. And you can have certain devices work with that, that if something happens, it can do something else. So I have a weather station from NetAtmo. Uh, I bought this in 2012. Their recent version is HomeKit compatible, but the one I have isn't. However, it can send me notifications and emails via IFTTT. Uh, So I could have potentially hooked them into some sort of Siri shortcut gizmo. And that gets kind of complicated. I'm trying to think what else I have. I have a Dyson uh, fan air purifier, and it's got its own app, but it's not compatible with HomeKit or Alexa. So what I really like about this new alliance is the potential for these companies who don't want to have to develop software for all the different platforms to just have one way of combining all this. Right. And what I can foresee happening is that, of course, Apple wants to continue to use their branding, I'm sure. And so you're still going to have the Home app but these things will uh, that use this new uh, standard are probably going to just integrate with Apple's existing home app just to make it much more easy to tie all these things together. And that's been one of the big problems really with all this home automation stuff is that there's multiple standards and you have to make sure that the device that you're purchasing is going to be compatible with whatever standards you're using in your home. Well, it's not only that, but you have multiple apps to control them. So I've got a folder on my iPhone. I've got the Home app. I've got the Ring app for the doorbell. I've got the Arlo app. So this is the Arlo security cameras. Now, with all of these devices, even if you use HomeKit, you generally have to set them up in the manufacturer's app. Um, I've got the NetAtmo app. So for my weather station, I've got the Dyson app. 
Um, I've got a Casper Glow app. These are these wonderful lights I have in the bedroom. They work by Bluetooth, not Wi-Fi, so they really can't integrate. The Sonos app, because Sonos is technically a smart device because it can do Alexa. But there is this fragmentation that makes it kind of complicated to understand. And, and the Home app is wonderful. Everything that goes in there is available on your Mac, on your iPhone, on your iPad, and even the Apple Watch. In my article, I have a screenshot of one of the cameras looking at the front of my home viewed from the Apple Watch. Now, what's interesting about the way HomeKit works is all of this depends on your iCloud account with two-factor authentication. So the security is really strong, but having that security means you can control them remotely. Um, So I can look on my watch to see what's going on outside my house. And that's because we talked recently about the chain of trust in Apple devices. This chain of trust allows you to ensure the access to these devices. Uh, As we were talking about the Ring cameras before, Ring needs its own two-factor authentication. Uh, And and I think one of the things about this protocol is maybe all of that will be melded together so that, let's say, if I set up two-factor authentication in HomeKit, I might not even need to use the Ring app, so no one could even try to get at my cameras with the Ring app. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I like the idea of having fewer, I guess, ways that people could sort of uh, work around the security that you've tried to set up and sort of find alternative ways to to break in. Um, there's there's definitely pros and cons to to sort of having multiple entry points. Um, one con I would say of having a single entry point and only one entry point is that now if somebody breaks in or figures out how to break into that one uh, entry point, now they have access to everything. Um, and that's the, the kind of thing that is a concern with a lot of, for a lot of people with like password managers, for example, they, they say, well, if someone gets that one password, then now that they have access to everything. Well, the home app does require two factor authentication. So it's a lot of work to get into it. But what worries me more is if that's the only way to control things, what happens if the home app's not working? What happens if for some reason I can't get into my iCloud account? which is needed for the home app, then I have no way to control things. If I have a smart lock, will I be locked into my house, for example? Obviously (laughs) not. But I think if you can control everything from one app, that's great. You're still going to need the other apps potentially to set them up, to turn on settings. One of the things about HomeKit is if you want to control anything remotely through the home app, you need to have a HomeKit hub. And it took me a long time to understand this because you never actually set up a HomeKit hub. It just happens automatically if you have a HomePod, an iPad, or an Apple TV. Hmm. Okay. And just now I don't have, I do have an Apple TV. Well, basically, I guess what's happening is, is through Apple's, again, chain of trust through their cloud, uh-huh. they're using one of these devices to be the one that sends the controls in your home. So okay. Apple's servers know that they can connect to this device. In fact, a screenshot in my article shows that the bedroom HomePod R, the right one of my stereo pair, is connected, and the three others are on standby. So HomeKit knows to check with Apple and that when remote commands come in, it knows to go through one of these devices to then send the commands out over my Wi-Fi network. Oh, interesting. But what's a little bit obscure about this is you never actually set up a HomeKit hub. 
It just happens automatically if you have one of these devices. And it's actually not that easy to find out that you need one of these devices. When you open the home app, it doesn't say to you, hey, well, maybe it does. If you don't have one of them, maybe it does say, hey, you need a home uh, a home kit hub. Um, but it took me a while to understand that you never actually choose a home kit hub. It's just the system that chooses it. So why do home home kit hubs matter? Why should we care about that? Well, because that's what's getting the information remotely if you're out of your home to be able to propagate that in your home. Some device in your home has to be able to get that information, say from my Apple Watch when I'm not home, to be able to send commands to other devices across my network. Huh. Okay. And one one of the things about all of this automation is you do need some sort of a hub. So I have a Philips Hue hub, um, or they call it a bridge. Right. Um, and that was necessary for the Philips Hue lights to work previously. And I think in the future, they will work directly with HomeKit. Um, I have a base station for my security cameras that creates its own Wi-Fi network for the security cameras and then bridges that to my router to access everything else. If you look at the topology of all this networking, it can seem very complicated. Uh, and one of the things that I admire about this is that as a user, you don't really need to know too much about it. You just need to know if you need a bridge or a hub uh, to control certain devices. There's this, uh, a lot of really good information in your article about this, including screenshots that kind of help explain how all this stuff works. Um, so we definitely recommend that our readers check out the article to to get a better grasp. If, if any of this is confusing, um, well, it, it, it's, it, that's understandable because this does get a little bit complicated, but it should be a little easier once you're looking at the article. Yeah, so there's one other thing that Apple just added uh, and it wasn't in the initial iOS 13 release uh, just a couple weeks ago. It's called HomeKit Secure Video. And my cameras don't support this, but many security cameras uh, will record video onto your iCloud account. Um, one of the problems with these security cameras is a lot of them make you pay a subscription to be able to store videos in the cloud and access them remotely. Now, I got these Netgear Arlo Pro cameras and the bridge or the hub that they use has USB jacks in the back, and I've plugged a small portable hard drive into it, so it records them locally. Um, but Apple recently added this way of saving these videos to your iCloud account, which means you can access them from any of your devices through the home app. They're recorded securely. They're encrypted like all other iCloud data, and you can save money on a subscription if your cameras support it. Hmm. Okay. Well, I like that idea. Um, of course, something that you always have to keep in mind uh, is – when you've got any kind of security camera solution, you need to to make sure that you understand very well where that video is going to be stored and how it's going to be accessible. Um, one thing that sometimes people don't think about is, you know, if you have a camera that's actually recording the video content directly onto the camera, um, it might be really easy to access that that data while the camera is there. But if someone comes along and steals your security camera, you may lose access to all of that video if the only place that it's stored is on the camera itself. A couple of versions of these Arlo cameras that I have uh, recorded videos on their bridge on an SD card. And then you would mm -hmm. have to take the SD card out and put it into a reader, into your computer to view them. Right. Um, and... and I'm, I haven't checked mine. I'm, I'm assuming that they are encrypted somehow because if someone came in 
and stole the hard drive that's connected to my hub, then they could view the videos. It's not like for, for these external cameras, I don't really care if it was an internal camera, uh, like the story we talked about earlier, um, that would be a little bit of an issue. But what I admire about all this is that very slowly we've gotten to the point that people without being hackers or DIYers can hook up this stuff relatively simply with some really complex networking and security features behind it. And Apple's done a really good job of this. HomeKit does remove a lot of the issues that you have uh, with multiple apps once you've set up a device. So are you tempted anymore? (laughs) smart home devices do you want a a home to be smart or not uh you know um being being the uh the paranoid guy that i am i i I have a tendency to uh want to shy away from having a like a true smart home with all these things integrated i mean you know once upon a time you know i remember gosh decades ago hearing about bill gates and his smart home you know before smart homes were like a a common consumer thing and i just thought oh wow that sounds so cool like that's the home of the future and now that we're here in what was the future <laughs> our our present it it feels like there's a little more that needs to be done to to make all this security better and i think it sounds like apple is doing some things very right. And so maybe, maybe I'll get to the point where I'm a little more comfortable setting up a, a, you know, a home kit hub for, for myself. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to let you enjoy your, your says the man with the Alexa device that's listening to him all the time. Oh, I remember though, I keep mine muted whenever I'm not using it. So of course, yeah, yeah I'm I'm trusting that that mute button actually works, but uh, you know exactly, <laughs> yeah. The the one thing I don't think I'd ever put on my home is a smart lock because if it doesn't work, that's a bit of a problem. You'd need a backup with a key, right? Um, and and the idea of like a smart thermostat, if someone hacks in with a denial of service attack and turns off your heat or your air conditioning, that could be kind of uncomfortable. So uh, it doesn't bother me for lights. I'm not worried about that. Uh, for, for these external cameras, I'm not worried. If I had kids indoors and, you know, baby monitor, I probably wouldn't be too comfortable. I, I think as the years go by, we're going to get a lot more of these, particularly with this new um, protocol that's being developed. And, and I think we need to carefully weigh the pros and the cons of each one of them. Right. And by the way, if anyone is thinking about any last minute Christmas shopping on something like a, uh, you know, a, mo- a baby monitor or something like that, be sure to really, really know what you're getting into when you get those. If, if you're, if you find something on clearance, it's super duper cheap. If it seems like this is such a great deal, um, you might want to look into it and make sure that uh, they've done security right. Read the reviews. Read third party reviews, not just reviews on Amazon or something from regular consumers, but um, try to find uh, some information about how their security controls work. Ideally, really, the company, the manufacturer should have that information on their site. If you can't find it, um, maybe be cautious and maybe don't buy that product. Yeah, just to to finish up, I took advantage of Black Friday sales for my security cameras. And you're going to have the same thing in the last days coming to Christmas and just after Christmas. So it is a good time if you're interested in things like that. Anyway, let's call this a show. It's time for us to go wrap presents and prepare for Christmas next week. Josh, have a very Merry Christmas and stay secure. All right. Merry Christmas and stay secure. 
Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>